ever wonder what parenting is really like? Do you think that you're the only one that's struggling? Or have you missed out on that amazing hack everyone was talking about? Well, that sounds like you. Grab a seat and get comfy, as you'll be hearing real-life stories from parents that are on the same collective journey, a little thing called parenthood. We'll hear from parents, caregivers, and experts as we fumble through this wonderful path together. I'm your host, Rashida, and welcome to the Parents Connecting Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Rashida, and welcome to Parents Connecting. Do you ever come across a topic or a subject matter or some sort of factoid that you just had no idea that it even existed and it completely changed your world? Well, this episode might be that for you. We're going to be talking about neurodiversity, autism, the autism spectrum, Asperger's. These are all words that you may not have even thought about that are even relevant to you. But as I came across these topics the last couple of years and have done some more research, I love to read, I love to learn. I started better understanding what autism, what it even means. Because the term autism, I think, has become a stereotyped word where there's stereotypes associated with what autism is, where it's maybe the lower end of the scale, because that's all that was known at the time. Um, and when I say the lower end of the lower end of the spectrum, and what Grace, who you'll hear in this episode, refers to as maybe profound autism, is maybe the nonverbal individuals or something that's, you know, a little bit more obvious. Um, but the spectrum, autism really does span the spectrum. And as you will here today, we we get into what it really can and, and, and maybe doesn't mean. The autism spectrum, as more information comes out, as we become more aware of it, as we learn more and we evolve, it spans, it is such a huge span. And that really, like the word spectrum is so accurate, uh, really, it's just such a good word for it. And I would encourage you to like listen to this episode in full because we're going to touch on some of these terminologies and, and what this all is in terms of relationships. Because as parents, you know, parenting is really challenging in, in and of itself, but so are relationships. And if you have a challenging relationships for maybe reasons that you don't even know that we're going to talk about today, that maybe a light bulb will go off for you and you think, hmm, this actually could be relevant to us then that's a wonderful thing to unlock because walking around, um, this goes back to my first episode, I had a separation of abs. These are totally two different topics, but relevant because I had no idea that what a separation of abs is, what a diastasis recti was, but I was walking around with it for years. And when I found out that, hey, there's this thing that has a word associated with it that can help, and now I can actually like heal from it, that was profound. I think that the terminology of what autism is and what it isn't is really, is a really important conversation to have for people to become more aware. Um, because, you know, as you have, you may have children that might be on the spectrum and you yourself might actually be on the spectrum without even knowing. I have had conversations with couples that have been married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they are just now understanding, 
um, or coming across this term of like maybe they have Asperger's or maybe they're on the high end of the spectrum. You know, they're functioning in society. They've been to work. They've, you know, a lot of these people are psychologists and doctors and, and you know, just people that you meet on an everyday basis that you would have no idea because I think when you hear autism, it feels like there's got to be something bigger. And so I, I really encourage, like, if you don't think that this relates to you, I challenge you to listen to the whole episode, A, just to learn something and B, um, to, to potentially come across something that is actually relevant to you um, or somebody that you know, because when you when you're in a relationship or any sort of very close um, friendship or even like parent, you know, parent child um, relationship, when there is something neurological, a neurological difference that can produce huge challenges that are not obvious, that are almost invisible. And so that's what we walk through in this episode. And I wanted to give a really full introduction because this topic is is really so complex and so layered that we're gonna do a mini series on it. So this is the first episode of three with an individual who is an expert in the field. Her name is Grace Myhill, and you're gonna hear the conversation that I had with her today and then two other ones, delving into some of the topics in, in a deeper level. But she is a she's a master of social work. She's a relationship coach and has done this work for many, many years, and specifically with neurodiverse couples. And we're going to get into the terminology of what neurodiverse means and its association with the autism spectrum. I am super excited to bring you this episode. I hope you get a lot out of it. There are tons of resources that are available if after listening to this, you think that this is relevant and this might be an answer to maybe some of your own challenges that you're having in your own relationships. This is not meant to diagnose anybody. It really is just to get information out there, to get people to be more aware and to open the conversation, um, to normalize things to some degree. And there's a 101 course that we talk about in this episode that is so interesting, so fascinating because there's an education component about just kind of going into the details of what neurodiversity is and the description. And then it's interviews with couples in various stages of the relationship from people that have been married like 50 years. Um, you get to hear some of the challenges, how, how, why it took them so long to discover this. And if you use the code Rashida25, you will get uh, a 25% discount on that course. And I, I took it myself. It just provides so much information. And as I as I watch these couples, I started thinking, oh my gosh, like I know this couple that would really benefit from this. And so it's really a resource that I hope that if you know if it doesn't apply to you, then you know pass it along to somebody that you think need it or learn something new and to and to gain wisdom really. All right, so I know that was a lot, but I really think that this topic deserves a highlight and to set the stage for the importance of this topic. Welcome, everybody. I am super excited to have Grace Myhill on the show today. She's going to chat with us about neurodiversity. I think that that term I have come across over the last, I don't know, year or two, and I think it it has morphed for myself as I learned more about what the term neurodiversity means. I started to get more intrigued. I started to 
kind of assess, are there people in my life that could be neurodiverse? And that topic just started unraveling things. So I thought it'd be great to have an expert on the show. Um, why don't we start with just maybe introducing who you are, what you do, and then we'll unpack just the terms and all that kind of stuff. So why don't we start there? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, so I am a neurodiverse couples coach. That is one of my main focuses, which means I work with neurodiverse couples to help them connect and communicate better. I also do groups for just the non-spectrum partner in the relationship, and I do groups for the spectrum partners in the relationship, and I do groups for couples together. And I'm also the AANE, which is the Asperger's Autism Network, director of two programs. One is, is for couples and partners services, where we have a lot of uh, resources and referrals for anyone in a neurodiverse relationship. And I'm also the director of their Neurodiverse Couples Institute. With that hat on, I develop courses for therapists or coaches to learn how to adjust their typical way of working with someone for when they're working with a neurodiverse couple and there are things that they need to do differently. So it sounds like you've got a lot of time on your hands. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not busy at all. So, so thank you for, for that. You know, it's interesting because even as you were seeing yourself, you said the spectrum. So one of the things that I wanted to start out with talking about is what the term neurodiverse means. I think it means something different to everybody, at least for the people that I've spoken with and as I read more information. And some of it's almost become like a buzzword to some degree. And so when I came across the term neurodiverse, it's probably a few years ago, a description that tells us, hey, we're all different. Right. And it not in not tagged to any sort of, you know, syndrome or this or et cetera, et cetera, just a really very generalized, hey, look, all of our brains are different. We all communicate differently. I think differently. Maybe you see something different. And then I started seeing it attached to kind of the autism spectrum or, or when you say spectrum. So I'm curious if that's what you meant by that. And if we can kind of unpack that a little bit. Yes. So some people will say we're all on the spectrum somewhere. Well, if we're talking about a human spectrum, then yes, of course. But I do believe there is an autism spectrum that not everybody is on. And so um, whether you meet the clinical diagnoses criteria uh, in the DSM-5 is another story, but there are certain traits and constellation of traits that does add up to having a certain type of way of thinking that does tend to be different from what is now known to be the statistical norm. Um, so um, when people say they are in a neurodiverse relationship, it can mean a couple of things. It could mean that um, their partner is on the autism spectrum and they are not. It could mean that they are on the ADHD spectrum and their partners on the autism spectrum. So some people will use their ADHD or ADD as a way of referring to themselves as not, they are not neurotypical. They are also neurodivergent because of that neurology. I think the terminology is very interesting because my understanding is that when it first came out, the term neurodiverse was meant not to be applied to a single person, 
but a comparative. If so, a relationship is neurodiverse because one person is neurotypical maybe, and one person is neurodivergent. Um, and so the person is neurodivergent, but the relationship is a neurodiverse relationship. But, but um, from what I hear from people is that they are using the term neurodiverse to um, basically synonymous with neurodivergent, and they are applying it to the partner who is on the autism spectrum or maybe on the autism spectrum or has enough traits to be considered not neurotypical in, yeah, so in their mind. So let's talk about that a little bit. So you mentioned that you coach individuals in, in relationships. And so why don't you actually talk about your experience in terms of couples that come in, do they know that they're on the neurodiverse? And I'm probably going to mix up the terminology. So, <laughs> I, you know, do they know that they're on one or the other? Do they find out? Do they, How do they come to you in terms of the coaching just to begin with? Well, now having been in this field for 20 years, and this is my main focus, um, if you Google me, you will find the terms Asperger's, autism, neurodiverse, neuro, you know, all of that. So if someone is coming to me these days, it's because they do feel that they are in a neurodiverse relationship. Um, and some of the non-spectrum partners, because they may have ADD, um, they figured it out and most of them have told their partner that's how it usually happens they figure it out because they're trying to figure out this is not the marriage or relationship i thought i was getting into something seems different here and it's a really good option that this is what's going on because an alternative option is that their partner doesn't really care about them or that their partner is intentionally being somewhat disconnected yeah. or even mean, mm -hmm. you know, that's how it feels to them. And they feel very alone in these relationships. And so when they stumble onto the idea that, okay, this may be why it's a huge relief, but some of them have reluctance to bringing it up to their partner because they feel like it will make their partner feel some sort of shame or feel pathologized. And they don't want to do that. So some will just come to me and say, um, you know, I think he may have traits or she may have traits or they may have traits, but they don't think so. But we're here anyway, because we want to improve our relationship and we want to learn these tools. So the tools and strategies that I have created are intended to take the different neurologies into account and really put them, puts them front and center. But these tools and strategies would actually work for any couple anyway. So I don't need someone to have a formal diagnosis. I don't even need them to be on board with the idea. So when a couple comes in and maybe one partner either doesn't believe it or isn't really on board, as you mentioned, um, how do you approach that? And then I think maybe before we get into that, let's rewind a little bit and talk about the traits themselves. So what, what are the things that people tend to come to you and say, hey, you know, my partner is X, Y, Z or has X, Y, Z. And then, and then we can maybe walk into that. So for the top, um, top four, I would say for, for relationships. So there's the whole issue of intimacy and emotional connection. And what seems to happen is that the partners have very different understandings, needs, and expectations for what intimacy and emotional connection is. And so for a lot of these couples, it's one person saying, we don't have this. And the other partner 
either not really understanding why they're saying that because they feel like they do have it or um, they don't really need it themselves. Um, so it's a mismatch there. So that's the that's sort of the top thing that um, people come in with. The second thing I'd say is communication. And people will say it feels like we're speaking different languages. You know, we are so different on this. And um, I may, I think it makes sense because a lot of people who are neurodivergent will be very focused on details and will have a very narrow lens. They're looking at specifics. They may be very literal and their partner may be more vague and general and bringing in context. And so they may even use words differently. And also what comes up a lot is people will say like um, someone will use words like always and never and their partner takes it literally and then there's a 15 minute fight about the one time it didn't happen is an exception and so uh, I, do, do, I mean I'm guilty of that I, I'm one of those that always says always See, said always <laughs> never like that's <laughs> yeah and then the next thing that is a big issue for for couples is executive function people on spectrum tend to struggle with prioritizing something, initiating, uh, managing it, um, breaking it down into its steps and following through, completing tasks. Part of executive function also can include time management and it can also include money management. And so for people who are in a relationship with someone, if someone isn't following through on the tasks that they say they will, it can result in a real breach of trust. If someone is also mismanaging money, that's a huge breach of trust there. And if someone is um, mismanaging their time, then there too. So there's um, a, plus, you know, household chores and the responsibility. You know, a lot of times one person will say they feel like they're the parent to the other partner because either they're doing everything, they're taking care of all of the, the chores and the tasks. Or it's the opposite where it's the person on the spectrum who has a very defined, rigid way of thinking that things need to be done and they're the enforcer and it makes the other partner feel like the child. So whenever there's this parent-child feeling in a relationship, there goes intimacy. So um, so that's another thing. And then the, I guess the fourth thing is, um, and these are not in order of importance, but um, perspective taking. Perspective taking is a big deal uh, when people don't even realize that another person can think of something differently than they do and that perspective can be equally valid. It's not about agreeing, but it's about understanding that both people can have a different perspective and then coming together as a team and deciding how to handle something, whether it's parenting or household stuff or money decisions or any of this. So you asked earlier, like, how do I talk about this stuff? Yeah. Especially with couples who may be not on board. So I, I talk about this stuff in terms of the duck bunny. So there's a duck bunny. Um, people, people could Google duck bunny and you come up with a lot of different images. But what I use it for is to show, it's, an, it's a graphic image of an of equally valid perspectives, of two equally valid perspectives. And the image is no more a duck than it is a bunny. Usually people see one first. We all see our own perspective first, but 
it's hard sometimes to see another person's perspective. Is that what's behind? I mean, I know people can't see this, but there's a picture that's behind yes. you that, okay. Just a way to show that you really need to expand your way of thinking about your partner and thinking that they also bring something to the table that you may not see. They may have strengths in areas where you have challenges and vice versa. And it's really important not to dismiss your partner's perspective mm -hmm. and not to speak in terms of this is the way it actually is, as if one person owns reality. People have different realities. And so um, it's really important that people bring that perspective to their relationship. And that's a lot of work. And it really goes against the neurology in some ways. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it's interesting because I, I wanted to go back to your third one that you had mentioned about perspective on things. So I'm curious, do you find that the person that might be neurodivergent to have the ability to think outside of, of themselves? So yeah. it's more about a, of a perception of themselves in a relationship, right? There's two people and I might perceive my spouse to be a certain way, but th that spouse might perceive what they're doing in exactly the opposite way. And so how do you untangle that? Yeah. So what you're bringing up is a trait, um, an autism trait called theory of mind, which has to do with two things. One is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand what's going on for them, but also it's how other people see you. And this is a challenge for a lot of people on the spectrum. So you know, some people can, some people can with a lot of help and guidance, and some people really can't. So some people will have a perception of themselves as being like very easygoing and they could take feedback and they have no problem with that. And their partner will say, what are you talking about? Whenever I tell you anything, you get extremely defensive and you deny, you know, what I'm saying. And so, you know, it's, that's a lot of the work of figuring out with, you know, various tools and strategies, helping both people see that the other person does have a perspective that is important to understand because you can't really problem solve these things until you understand what the issue really is. Now, a lot of couples will get locked into just repeating back and forth. I want the glasses put out, put in the cabinet this way upwards and the other person wants them put downwards. And it's not until you ask and explore this more to understand why. Now, um, this came up last week, so I'll use it. It's a great example. Uh, one person may say, I've always put my glasses in the cabinet upside down. That keeps them cleaner because dust won't fall into the top of the glass. And um, the other person may say, I want them face up because I know that there's dirt on the bottom of the cabinet. And now we're putting the part of the glass that we drink from right into the dirty part. And so face up would be... Um, Right side up would be the better way to do it because they're going to be cleaner that way. Now, this couple has a common goal of having clean glasses and not drinking dirt. Right. <laughs> Nobody is arguing about that. Um, and so it's not until you untangle some of this where you start to say, okay, so there's a couple ways of going here. If the person who's used to putting them upside down can't really change that habit, then maybe you need to wipe down the the base of the cabinet every week to keep it clean or put shelving paper or whatever it is so that you know this is an example of of creative problem solving where once you understand both people's concerns 
you come up with a solution that takes both people's concerns into account. So like trying to find the underlying root a win -win. cause. Of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That must, that's gotta be so hard. That was a really great example. Are there other examples that come to mind that are, this one was a little bit more innocuous, but what about some of the tougher ones that, that might be more challenging? So another really common one is driving fast. So often the partner in spectrum feels like they are a good driver they follow the rules and they are going with traffic. And if traffic is going fast, they're going fast because they may think you're supposed to keep up with traffic. That's what they were taught. And they don't, they know what's going on in their mind. So they're aware of things that the passenger doesn't know sure. if they're aware of or not. Now, often the passenger will say, could you slow down? And that makes the other partner feel criticized and they'll start to defend well, I'm not going fast or I'm going the speed of traffic. Meanwhile, that person gets not only more and more anxious because of the actual speed that they're going and they feel very out of control, but also now that they've expressed their concern to hear that their partner is not attending to their needs. And now that, you're talking about the neurotypical partner telling, expressing. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So um, that makes them feel really unsafe. And really, again, there's a lot of betrayal that happens, you know, maybe in these little ways, but all those little things break intimacy because if you can't trust someone to take care of you when you're telling them, hey, I'm anxious here, please slow down, I'm anxious, then it's hard to want to be vulnerable and close and all the things that, you know, being intimate requires. So I work a lot with language, changing the way you say something. Now, I'll say Instead of saying, can you please slow down? Because that then puts the burden on the other person and the focus is on the speed to say, I feel anxious. You know, if you say, I feel anxious, can you slow down? That's different from just saying, can you slow down? Because now you're putting it on, can you please take care of me? Can you right. take care of me? This is not a critique of your driving, but can you take care of me? And so things like that make a big difference. Communication can be very hard for people on the spectrum, and they may want to be very efficient with it, and they may use it to um, exchange information, but not necessarily even thinking about using it to connect. And so oh, that's that's so deep exchanging information. Okay, And that may be connection for them. And so um, they often will try to avoid what may be a conflict. And often their experience has been when they try to talk about their feelings, it turns into a conflict. So then they make a conscious cognitive decision like to just avoid those conversations. And sometimes they'll just say, um, I'm actively choosing not to bring up my needs. Or if I was hurt, I'm actively choosing not to mention it because I want to avoid a conflict. Now, what they don't realize and what we get to with the coaching is that their avoidance is causing another kind of conflict because now their partner is feeling alone and confused. Like, why is my partner retreating from me or acting like they're not interested in me and they have no idea? So um, it takes a lot of work and a lot of tools to say, like, here's how you could bring up your discomfort in the relationship. And sometimes they, um, people on the spectrum also may have a, a concept that something has to be really important 
to bring it up. And so they don't want to use that card because they may need it in the future for another thing that's important as if there's a limit. And they kind of apply that to their partner. It's like, well, if you're bringing up how we're putting the dishes in the cabinet, is that the thing that's most important to you? As if you have to choose to only comment on the things that are most important to you. So there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. Often also people on spectrum do not feel comfortable asking for help because they, they may have been told all their lives, you figure it out or go work harder and get it. You know, like I don't have to spoon feed you everything. And so they're being told like, it's not good to ask for help. And so they carry that into adult life and with their partner, they don't want to ask for help. They can be very, very self-sufficient very autonomous, almost counter-dependent. I had one neurotypical partner say to me, there's nothing I can do for my partner. I can't even pick up their dry cleaning. They want to be so self-sufficient and not rely on anybody for anything. So then, um, so let's talk about like the childhood aspect, because you met, you mentioned that. So for someone that may not have been diagnosed, and they kind of discover this in their late, you know, in their older years, do you work through what, like, do you unpack kind of that childhood history? Does that actually make it worse? Does it make it like, how does that factor into just kind of everything, honestly? Like, you know, cause I think if you don't know something and then you look back in your history and you're like, oh, well, maybe this is why, does that help it? Does it help kind of explain things or? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, when I worked as a therapist, we might have done more about that. But somewhere in the last 10 years, I really heard from neurodiverse couples that they had been to like six or seven or eight therapists, and they weren't getting the help that they needed because they were really looking for concrete tools and strategies. So I decided to stop doing therapy and just focus on coaching with concrete tools and strategies. But that said, Um, anyone um, can work with a therapist who is trained to work with neurodiverse couples and look at some of that stuff. And I think it can be profoundly healing to understand that it wasn't that they were doing something wrong. Um, And the shame and blame that they may carry from those years has a reason. And the reason is because they have a different neurology that has both strengths and challenges and nobody understood them back then. And that's why some of these things happen. Uh, For other people on the spectrum though, when you bring up something from the past that was painful, they just perseverate on it and they stay stuck in it and it can be depressing. So I think it's an important individual difference to know, you know, to figure out with them and with a professional who understands it, like, is this helpful or is this really unhelpful? Oh, okay. So sometimes maybe even delving into the past may be counterproductive, it sounds like. Yeah, because memory seems to be very different when um, a person who's not on the spectrum has an event in their life and then they move further away from that event. Let's say it's a, a loss. Somebody died. As With time, there's healing. And it's just the passage of time that allows for that feeling. And when they think back about that person or that experience, of course, they feel sad, but not the same sad that it when it happens. A person on the spectrum seems to have a very vivid experience of memory, autobiographical memory. And when they think about, you know, you could say to someone on the spectrum something about second grade, and they're there telling you the first and last names of the kids in the class. And it's like, they are right there. And they're experiencing this. 
And um, there's a very interesting book. I don't know if you've read it yet uh, called The Reason I Jump. Oh, no. And it's um, a book that was made, (laughs) wasn't even written. It was made by a nonverbal teenage boy on the spectrum with the help of um, computer aided um, soft software and an interviewer. And someone asks him about his experience with memory. And they ask, uh, you know, like, why are you doing the thing that your mother just told you this morning not to do? And he says, for him, there's no distinction between what happened this morning and what happened, you know, two years ago that it's just just as active in his memory. Um, but you can use this in a positive way where if somebody's having trouble regulating their emotions um, and you ask them about something that's, you know, their deep interest and they're happy about talking about that, you know, their brain just switches to being right in the moment about the new topic, you know, which is the their, their favorite topic, right? So then you could see a very quick mood change for the positive. So, you know, you can use this um, in a very helpful way. And I'm speaking, you know, in very broad generalities. And of course, everybody is different. But, um, you know, that's just one of the differences that comes up with with couples, too, because sometimes it's the partner in spectrum that won't let go of something that happened in the past, because um, their partner maybe keeps bringing it up, and they're right there then when it happens. And Uh, So I think people have to, both people have to be careful how you're bringing up stuff from the past. One of the things that I wanted to talk about as well was what led you to this path? You talked about your transition from therapy to coaching because you heard from the the groups that you were working with and made an active decision, but what led you into this, this sort of area from the beginning? Yeah. Um, So I was in social work school and I was doing an internship at a local college and I had the opportunity to work with um, a student for an entire year. And there was this one student, she was a senior and she really perplexed me and my supervisors. Uh, She would come in um, from week to week presenting very differently from what I was learning. So sometimes she was crying and I would interpret that as she was sad. Sometimes she was telling me how she was the only one who worked on the group project and no one else did a good job. And, you know, uh, she had these very high standards. She didn't get along with the other women generally. It was an all-female school and she seemed to have only like serial monogamous relationships with um, a partner if they were away, if they were at different schools, you know, different states even. But when they were together, things didn't go well. She also described her mother as playing video games all the time and not being very present for her. And her life goals, she was very artistic and really good at it. Um, But her dream was to move to another country across the world and never come home again. Like she just didn't care if she severed all relationships with people Uh, If she was in her country of interest, working in her field of interest, she was going to be happy. It took me about six months to ask her why she cried, because I made the mistake that I assumed I knew. I assumed it was depression and, and sadness. I finally asked her why she cried. And she explained she was frustrated. So she didn't have the she didn't have the language to, to talk about her feelings. So it just came out as crying. And when she did cry, she did some very immature things. She, for a person who was 21, she would just wipe her nose with her sleeve. And she also had some immature ways of presenting herself. 
She always like had a barrette in her hair that matched her socks, you know, things that a little girl would do. So she had these, um, these very confusing traits to me. Uh, and sometimes I thought she was bipolar. Sometimes I thought she was anxious. And then finally it occurred to me, something else is going on here that I don't know about. I happened to have a friend who had a daughter on the spectrum. And I just thought, why don't I just ask this friend if any of this sounds familiar? And so the friend who's also a social worker invited me to come to her group of adults on the spectrum that she was running at what was, you know, the beginning of the Asperger's Autism Network. It was the Asperger's Association of New England back then. And so she, you know, she said, yeah, it sounds like this, this woman may have been on the spectrum. And since my next job was in a different college counseling center, I thought I really need to know about this. So I came to her group of adults on the spectrum and I asked them, what should a college counselor know? to be working with uh, people on the spectrum. And they were great. They were so thrilled to share their advice with me. You know, some had had really great experiences in an academic setting because they were so smart. And some had really tough experiences because of the social and the executive function challenges. And so I kept learning from them. They kept inviting me back to learn more. And so my friend who was leading another group with adults with autism asked me to co-lead it with her. So I started doing that and I learned so much from them. And then at that time, A&E kept getting calls from spouses saying, we need support. What do you have for us? So they asked me to, to lead spouse groups. So I started doing that. And then the spouses said, hey, can we bring in our partners and do couples groups? So I started doing that. So, so then eventually I got my independent social work license and I opened up a private practice and I opened it outside the school where I did my internship thinking I'm going to get all these referrals from the school. Well, 99% of my referrals came from the Asperger's Association because it was rare that they had someone to refer to to do therapy with adults on the spectrum or couples um, or even the spouses. So I just started really focusing on that population and um, it really stuck. And I've just been doing this work since. So when you say autism is a spectrum, you also mentioned Asperger's. So I know that Asperger's technically now is considered on the autism spectrum, but is that because it was parsed out maybe before? Can you talk a little bit about what Asperger's is or was and what are the traits that present? I, so I kind of want to just like break down what does the spectrum mean? Where does Asperger's sit on the spectrum and, and go through that? Yeah. Um, it's complicated and the terminology is reflecting our knowledge at a moment in time and we keep changing it. Um, so when the term Asperger's syndrome was put into the DSM in, in the 1990s, it was separate from the autism spectrum and autism was thought to be more like what today you would call profound autism and Asperger's then is what people now are referring to as autism. So in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, where all the mental health and neurological disorders are, um, the criteria is um, there are three levels of autism spectrum disorder. And the levels are one, two, and three. Three is the most severe. And they describe it in terms of if a person had a little support, uh, with level one, then like it, their 
uh, spectrum traits wouldn't really get in their way. If it's two, you know, two, they need, need more support and three, they need a lot of support and they're still going to have, you know, the difficulties. And so, you know, someone who has um, that diagnosis may have problems living on their own and doing the functions of daily life. But, you know, this is where things get very complicated. That may have nothing to do with their IQ and it may have nothing to do with their verbal abilities. So they may be nonverbal, but highly intelligent. You know, it's not a linear spectrum. It's like a three-dimensional, you know, you could have so many different combinations of traits that make the person present um, in so many different ways. Uh, that's why there's this phrase, you know, when you met one person on. Right. Spectrum, you met you one, met one yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, the work that I do, though, I really focus on people who are in a neurodiverse relationship. So that implies a certain level of social skills and relational abilities already. And most often I'm working with the people who are highly successful in their work. Not everybody. Some people on spectrum really struggle with work um, because of the executive function or they haven't found a situation that works well for them. A lot of times um, people on spectrum do well if if they're the boss or the you know, they're working for themselves or they can call the shots in some way. But other times it's, you know, it's because in a work world, um, it may be uh, their deep interest. So it aligns really well and they could be really good at it. Another reason why they could succeed at work is because they may have administrative assistance. So I usually am working with the couples where the person on the spectrum is very successful at work and at home, it's very confusing because their partner is saying, why can you do all this at work? But at home, you're not, you know, doing what we set out to be your chores or your responsibilities, or you're not initiating, you're not, you know, showing up here the way you do at work. And the reason for that is that the person who grew up at a time when there either wasn't a diagnosis for them, or there wasn't support for them, or the kind of support for them was to mask, to try to act in a way that people won't detect your difference. And so this is made for a lot of success in the neurotypical world if you're good at masking, but it takes a huge toll on a person's energy and it can really exhaust them. So at home, they can't, the masking is not sustainable and they, they just don't wanna have to keep thinking so much and watch their words and apply their social skills and they're modulating their mood um, at home. So they just want to be at home and be however that is. But it's such an extreme difference to the neurotypical partner or the non-spectrum partner that they're confused because during courtship, the person masked, the person they were dating feels like a very different person than now the person that they're living with. So how long does it take for somebody to uh, and I'm sure it's different, but in your average, how long does it take that somebody has been married and they come to your, they come to you and, you know, is it, cause it sounds like in the beginning of a relationship, you just don't know because everything is going well. And then somewhere down the line, things unravel and maybe you get tired of masking or et cetera, et cetera. So can people be married like 10, 20 years and then figure it out? Or, you know, what, what's been your experience on that? 
Yes, 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50. Um, I do have some clients in their 80s. I also have clients who were um, with their partner since they were teenagers. You know, it's very interesting. Um, Sometimes the older people figure it out because they have a grandchild on the spectrum. And then when the grandparents are trying to learn about being on the spectrum so that they can be there to support their adult children and also to have a good relationship with their grandchild, all of a sudden they realize, oh my God, this is so familiar. And this is what, you know, our adult child was like, or this is what my partner was like. So it takes a long time for some people. And some people do come to me. Well, you asked earlier who comes to me. So now, you know, people come to me knowing because that's what I do. But a lot of the therapists who I train, they have more general practices. And so they're, they're getting couples coming to them who don't necessarily know or are just maybe figuring it out. And so it's, it's a lot to unpack. Once you realize it, it's, um, there's a, a grief process for both people sometimes because you're feeling relief, but you're also going back and, and putting this new lens on everything that happened in the past, but also everything that you expected to happen in the future. And so you're now, you're now like rethinking, okay, what are- Like the limitations maybe of like what something is, maybe who somebody might be capable of just because of the neurodivergent traits. Right. Or what kind of work do we need to do to get the expectations met? Right. And so, so talk, talk a little bit about that in terms of, so let's say now, okay, the couples are on board or they come to you. What does the process of like learning these tools that you've mentioned that, you, you know, you've you created in your practice, but in, in general, do you see, is this kind of a lot? I mean, I imagine it's a lifelong thing, but in terms of trying to not rectify, I don't want to use the word rectify, but just, you know, trying to align the relationship. How long does that typically take for you to see some real progress where um, it's sustained. So it's interesting. You put the word sustain there. Okay. So I see real progress in one week. Really? Oh, really, really. Because if the people are on the same team and they're willing to try these new tools, then a lot happens very quickly as they start to communicate differently. And they're both showing up to do that work there's more hope and there's a a lessening of anger and there's um, the ability to speak to each other in a different way that didn't happen before. And so often between my first session with someone and my second session, they come in saying, wow, um, this is, this has really been a game changer. And is that the case, and and sorry to interrupt, but is that the case for couples that have gone to see another, like a prior therapist that may not have been aware or had the tools? Absolutely. Is that, is that, is that that drastic? Yeah. In fact, when they've gone to see therapists who don't recognize the neurodiversity or don't, you know, know about it, they often come away from those experiences in therapy feeling like they've been harmed, not helped because, you know, somehow the therapist not understanding one or both of them can lead to them feeling blamed or shamed um, for things that were not. They just don't have a control, right? Yeah. Um, But you added the word sustain. So, you know, it's hard to keep new routines in place 
when other things change. So some of the things I try to do a lot is to solve for problems that haven't yet happened. Let's talk about barriers. So often people will get into a good rhythm with each other, but then they go on vacation or one person goes traveling for work and then they come back and they resort to the old routines. So I try to say, okay, we have to figure out ways to keep the routines going on to some level, even when one or both people are traveling and you have to make a real effort when they come back to make sure you know you're you're going back to the things that are new and working um because our brains tend to want to go to the deepest groove right if we use a record analogy from the past you know and so whatever's been repeated the most is going to be the easiest to slip back into and so you know with new habits you have to really stay on top of it and maybe you need reminders maybe you need weekly check-ins with your partner like to say okay are we slipping are we on track here how do right. we get back on track? Maybe we need to go back to using a tool that we um, thought we were done using because we already learned the skills, but maybe we need to resurrect that tool again. Interesting. So can you, so can you share maybe like one tool that you provide your clients that, that has, you know, that kind of impact? Sure. So uh, one of them is called question, answer, answer, answer. Because that is what it is. One person asks a question, the other person answers in exactly three sentences. Even if they want to talk more about it, they can't. Even if they want to say one word, they think it's a one word answer, they have to say three sentences. And then the other person does the same. So it goes back and forth. So one person asks a question, that person answers in three sentences, and then they ask a question back, and the other person answers in three sentences. Just doing this with three back and forths takes about 10 minutes, and it builds some skills that are super important. So one skill it builds is being able to chunk down your communication to three sentences worth, because either partner can overwhelm the other partner with too many words, whether they're technical words um, or whether they're, whether they're emotional words. Um, just too many words can be a problem for processing. So then in real time, someone can say, you know, hey, just three. And it's code for my brain is getting too full of words. Can we wrap it up? And it's not critical. No one has to be defensive. No one did anything wrong. It's just a shortcut. Um, likewise, if someone says, you know, how was your day at work? And their partner says, fine. The other person can say, can I have three sentences? Because they don't, the other person doesn't realize that that shuts down the communication. And, and chances are that question was a bid for connection. But what the other person doesn't realize is maybe the person who just said fine got through their stressful day and does not want to relive it. Back to what we talked about earlier, that question of how was your day for some people is a terrible question because now they're back in their day and they're reliving it again. It's like, oh, I, I got out of work and now you're asking me to go back into work in my head and tell you about work. And so being able to say, can I have three sentences and having the people practice this, they're likely to say something like, you know, it was good. Um, I had a meeting with my boss. Um, the project seems to be going smoothly or my boss may be leaving and I may need to look for a new job. And that information may never come out if the right question wasn't asked in the past. So, you know, this ability to ask for more and also to ask for less 
is really helpful to make communication more effective for a couple. Um, and this other, the last skill it builds by practicing the tool is this reciprocal question back. So being able to say to somebody, um, you know, my day was good, you know, this happened and that happened. How was your day? Okay, now we've got a dialogue going and that feels good. Or even if you get used to asking your partner questions, like even if you were to say, like, I'm going to get a glass of water. Would you like one too? It's like, whoa, now my, now my partner thought about me. That feels so good. And a lot of times people on the spectrum don't ask questions that are not logistical questions because either they feel like, well, my partner talks so much anyway, they're just going to tell me anything that's important. I don't need to ask or asking feels intrusive or they don't like questions. So they don't think other people like questions. Meanwhile, the other person, this is where the duck bunny comes in. The other person may feel like I feel like my partner doesn't care about me because they never ask me any questions about myself. Or you're uninterested or yeah. I mean, it's interesting as you go through this, because that concept of the question, the reciprocal question, just in any relationship, honestly, like if you have friends that there's just seems to be a one-way dialogue where you're always asking how they are. And the expectation is, well, hey, maybe you should ask me how I'm doing, but it just never happens. And so that's, I feel like that is a skill that can be across the board. Helpful Absolutely. In, in anything. <laughs> yeah. Any of these tools would help anybody. Um, so when people do question, answer, answer, answer once a day, a couple of things happen. They plan 10 minutes, attach it to a previously existing routine. Um, if you eat dinner together routinely, stay at the table for 10 minutes after. Some people don't like to talk and eat at the same time, so you could do it after. Or if you watch a show together, meet at 8 o'clock on the couch and do it for 10 minutes before you turn on the show. Or if you need to put the kids to bed, meet up in the bedroom after you put them to sleep. And so, so it's an intentional thing. It's not just something that happens maybe throughout the day. You really want to make it like in very intentional. Yes. It's a date. It's a, it's a, an appointment. It's a relationship appointment. And when you have that and you know, you have that, you look forward to that and you save up some of your questions instead of interrupting your partner during the workday, you know, switching tasks can be hard. Being interrupted can be hard. So you save it up for when you're going to have your partner's focus and knowing it's only 10 minutes is something that's great because, you know, people won't avoid it because they're afraid uh, if we start talking, it's going to turn into three Two hours. hours. And, right. Yeah. yeah. And there goes the <laughs> evening and all the things I wanted to get done. So, you know, you have it. And you could also decide, okay, tonight, let's use question, answer, answer, answer to plan our holidays. You know, what are we going to do? And, and you could use it to collaborate on something because sometimes people in the, in the couples I work with, they feel there's this unevenness about making decisions or making plans. So you get this collaboration, you know, you say, what do you think we should do on Christmas day? Well, I think this, this, and this, what do you think? Okay. I think this, this, and this. Okay. So now given that you thought this and I thought this, how do we bring that in? So we all get some of what we need here in a way that feels right. Or where do you want to go for, you know, summer vacation or whatever. Um, but the last thing you could also use it for besides planning something or just having a back and forth, you could use it to enhance emotional connection or intimacy. And the way you would do that is that first you want to make sure you know what types of questions your partner 
likes to be asked what will feel connecting to them. And it might be, again, back to the duck bunny. Everything's always back to the duck bunny. Yeah. Um, one person might like being asked about their feelings, um, their hopes, their dreams, uh, their life experiences, their passions. Um, some people like being asked about what book they're reading, what podcast are they listening to, uh, what happened at work. So some people, you know, feel connected with different types of questions. So you want to make sure that the experience of it is not that you get your information, um, but that the other person's experience of your questions feels connecting. Yeah, and it's so, always about connecting. Like this whole, I mean, this whole concept is just really connection because that does bring people together. And I love the concept of the three sentences because I find myself sometimes even when asked a question, I'll like just blurb it all out. And it's like, you know, an hour later and who knows what I'm talking about. So, um, and it's so simple and it, but I can see that it would work so well because it provides just enough of like for each person to feel connected, heard. listened to and heard. Yeah. That's yeah. the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Heard and understood. Um, and some people will use it to talk about parenting issues and, you know, or just how their kids are doing or, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, it. Yeah. And then some people, you know, after using it for a week or two, they realize, okay, this has been great. And now we don't need the strict structure of it. We can just have a, we can just keep meeting up and have a 10 minute conversation and we could do it more freestyle. And that's, that's great. But then if they realize, okay, we've really gone way off and now we forgot our skills, then you bring it back in. So. Oh, that's great. Okay. So then if we can kind of pivot to kind of your thoughts on like the concept of these like self-tests and diagnoses and what's your thoughts on that? Because you mentioned that a lot of people either come, they either, they might have an inkling, they may know, you know, confirmed. What's your thoughts on tools out there and what, and the self-test, I think, kind of goes into my question about perception. So you said you mentioned somebody might think they're really easygoing, but then the other person's like, what are you talking about? So are those really effective? And is there any benefit? And the next thing would be, is there any benefit of it when you're in a relationship to go and maybe get formally diagnosed? Does that help in any way? Um, huge question. So uh, some people on the spectrum can report accurately, but some people can't, and they may not know if they are one or the other. They may all think that they are a good self-reporter. So I would definitely, if they're using a self-screener, um, make sure your partner is involved in that and how your partner answers those questions for you is also important. Um, and so I think that's true. Even if you go for a formal diagnosis, you need the you need to work with an evaluator who is going to also um, take the intimate other's um, perspective into account. If you were diagnosing a child, you would talk to the parents. If you're diagnosing an adult, you need to talk to. Right. Um, and if there isn't, if there's just an adult on the spectrum who doesn't have an intimate other, then a parent might be someone that they also bring in for that or very very close friend, like a roommate would be better than someone who's actually lived with the person would be really the best, but, you know, um, as close as you can find. Um, so the reasons for diagnosis can be, um, 
obviously for accommodations on a job or government help or whatever, you know, if you need that, or if you're in an academic setting for learning accommodations, but most of the couples that I'm working with, there's a, there's no reason except for self-awareness and self growth. Um, but sometimes it's, it's important to the spouse or partner, not so much the person themselves. Um, I just want to say a diagnosis is not a yes or no. Mm. It's more than that. It's here's, here's a snapshot of how your brain is working on some level. These are areas you're super good at. These are areas you have some challenges. And I think it's a very interesting process for someone to go through and learn that about their brains. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful to bring to the relationship. Like if your partner keeps asking you to do things that require really good executive functioning, and it's really not your strength, then Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, if it's not your partner's strength either, maybe you hire help. Oh yeah. Delegation. In some way. Don't, yeah. Don't parents love delegation? <laughs> yeah. Get someone who's good at yes. it. Um, but to keep trying to put something on someone where it's a struggle is hard, but also it may put into context, like if their communication, um, if they struggle with maybe um, um, expressive communication, mm-hmm. so they understand stuff, but they just don't know how to put things into words in a way, or they can't, you know, they can't put a lot of words together. The partner in hearing that and seeing that that's actually, um, a, you know, in a in an evaluation, they yeah. won't take it personally anymore. Yeah. And okay. maybe they need that kind of confirmation. Sometimes they also need the confirmation because everybody around them is dismissing their idea that their partner may be on the spectrum. And they may be saying like, um, they may be saying stuff to their friends and their friends may be saying, you know, all partners do this or right. this is, you know, all relationships struggle in this way, or at least your partner isn't doing this other terrible right. thing. And none of that is helpful. and makes the person feel even more alone because mm-hmm. now they have nobody to talk to about yeah. these things that they still are feeling like this is not what I expected. Mm-hmm. This is not typical of a relationship and they can't explain it. And so sometimes it can be hugely validating for the partner to have that And so for some couples, it is important, especially if it becomes a contentious topic. I mean, Mm -hmm. no one should use anyone's um, neurological difference or any mental health issue or anything um, as a weapon. And sometimes that happens. People start saying, well, you know, you're you can't understand this because you're on the spectrum. And that's a terrible thing to say Mm. to somebody. You know, it does put them down and you just don't want to assume that maybe they could understand it if it was explained in a way that works with their learning style, perhaps. Right. Um, so you don't want to use it to make anybody like belittle them and any yeah. yeah condescend. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but it can be really helpful uh, for some people to figure this out, and it does make sense of their lives, and it could be something that is helpful for each of their families to know. Like mm. you know, my partner needs to take breaks um, every you know, hour or so because of um, sensory overload, you know, that's all of a sudden making sense out of what used to be viewed as your partner doesn't like us, right? You know, they keep walking away and walking the dog and going to play with the kids. And, you know, they're just not paying attention to us. And so it's sometimes very helpful as a way of explaining things, but you don't need it. You could also explain to your families, hey, my partner is the type of person who gets Mm. overwhelmed in social situations. So you don't need to have 
a label, but you do need to have um, sometimes a way to talk about things with people. And it, so, and is that concept of, because you mentioned the sensory component, do neurodivergent individuals tend to be more sensory uh, sensitive, I guess is, I don't know if that's yeah. the right word, but. So it's either hyposensitive or hypersensitive. Okay. There usually is a difference, but not every, everybody has either. And I mm-hmm. um, just want to say, you don't need one trait or there is no one magic trait that if you have it or you don't have it, it means you are or not on mm-hmm. the spectrum. Okay. And there's still a lot of inaccurate information about sure. that in the professional world too. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes people, professionals will say, well, because you make eye contact, you're not on the spectrum or because- I have you, heard that a lot. Yeah, right. Yeah, like because you're- con- yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're an extrovert, you know, none of that is true. You can be an extrovert and be on the spectrum. You can make wonderful eye contact and be on the spectrum. You could be very empathic. In fact, most people on the spectrum are very empathic. It's just that they don't know how to talk about it or they get overwhelmed mm-hmm. by the feelings. Uh, but yeah, back to the sensory issues. So you can have someone who um, doesn't feel temperature in the same way. So they can be oh. um, like walking in flip-flops in the snow you know, um, or, or you can have the opposite that if it's, you know, if it's hot out, like two degrees hotter than normal, um, yep. they feel like they can't even think because they're so hot. So, oh, yeah. And then there's like, it can yeah. really affect in so many different ways that don't eat. Like you said, it's not linear. There's not like this, you know, very clear connection, but that's so yeah. fascinating. And the, even like the material of clothing, or the mm, yep. style of clothing could feel um, good or bad to someone on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this, you know, look at all the five senses. There's something in, in every sense, yep. um, obviously smells um, and bright lights and um, uh, tastes. And, you know, some of that gets in the way of intimacy as well. Mm-hmm. And so yep. it's really important to know what your partner's sensory sensitivities are how do they like to be touched do they like firm touch or do they Mm -hmm. like light touch or no touch at times Mm -hmm. um, or touch in certain places but not others so there's a lot that really is important to know I feel like I read like I was looking into sensory stuff a long time ago because one of my child had a lot of uh, texture issues with food and you always hear about picky eating and all this stuff. And, um, and then I got brought into this sensory world. And so um, I'm curious and, you know, you may or may not have an answer, but that sensory component almost seems independent because we all have sensory issues. I don't like anything that's really super gooey. It's just, you know, that's, you know, like I can't eat oysters for that reason. I think they're really gross. And, and I've always had that. Right. And so I feel like it is very complex because there's just so many different layers of so many different things. If somebody listening to this and like, well, you know, they might be thinking, well, I have all these sensory things, you know, how do you like go about identifying like, well, they can, they can maybe relate to a lot of these things, but maybe not so much the other what is your advice to people if they even have this sense of they've been in a relationship for however many years and they're thinking, huh, might seem like they're on the spectrum. How would somebody identify, I guess, if they're on the spectrum, if they don't necessarily want to get like a full diagnosis, like like, what is the process for that? Yeah. um, You could look on AANE's website, aane.org. There's a lot of information. There's, you know, constellations of traits, strengths, and challenges. There's also a lot of first-person stories 
that um, people have written that um, maybe they'll relate to. They'll see themselves in those stories. Um, there's a lot of webinars. Um, there's a you know a lot of groups. There's you know they could come to a webinar. Um, I think it's called like Autism 101. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways of finding out. Um, we also made a, a course, an online self-paced course called 101 for couples. And one person can take it. It's not, you know, it doesn't matter. You can share it with your partner or just watch it yourself. But in there, I talk a lot about what the trait categories are. And there's uh, some downloadable PDFs that includes like, it's almost like a screener, like a lot of questions. Um, and it's also an interesting course because I interviewed nine neurodiverse couples. And so again, I think a lot of this is about listening to see if you're relating to people who have identified that way. Um, and there's a lot of you know, podcasts like yours out there now and Facebook groups. And um, there's a lot of information. And so if people are curious, they really can just do a deep dive into, um, yeah, figuring out. Yeah. Well, tell us about, tell us about where people can find you and the resources that you have. I'm, I'm sure that people will be really interested after this. I mean, I know I am, I, I could talk to you forever. Um, there's so many layers in this, I think. Um, but yeah, t- tell us about what, tell people where they can find you. Sure. Um, so you could find me two places, either at gracemyhill.com, which is um, the my website for my private practice of neurodiverse couples coaching and groups and all that and professional consultation as well. Um, or you could find me at A&E where I'm grace.myhill at ane.org. And we'll put all um, this in the show notes as well. So. Okay, great. And, um, you know, if you're a professional interested in getting training through our courses, you know, reach out to me there. If you're um, part of a neurodiverse family and you want resources for parents of children, teens, or adults um, on the spectrum, we have tons of resources there, tons of groups for people on the spectrum. There's now a teen group as well. There's a grandparent group. There's a lot, there's a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, And there's also, so there's, there's groups, there's coaching, there's webinars, there's um, first person stories, there's just, you know, lists of books and articles that people recommend. So there's a lot of uh, resources available. Wonderful. Wonderful. And again, I will put this all in show notes. And so before we wrap up, I'm just curious, is there anything else that you want to share or like tell people that are listening that you want to impart? I mean, I think this was a really fascinating conversation. And like I said, I feel like there's just like layer upon layer of things that we could talk about. So yeah, there are two things I'd love to tell professionals. Um, One is that you may not think you have neurodiverse couples as your clients, but you may. And you may have one partner in a neurodiverse relationship if you just see individuals and you may have couples. So I think it's important that all therapists learn about how to recognize this because you do need to adjust how you work with couples when they are neurodiverse. And like I said earlier, you don't want to do the harm that some therapists um, accidentally do. The other thing to professionals is unless you are doing an assessment for autism and that you've been trained to do that, and that's an area of expertise, and you're also interviewing the partner, do not tell somebody who brings it up to you, no, you are not on the spectrum. 
because that is so damaging. I've heard from couples where one partner has thought about they may be on the spectrum and then they bring it to their therapist and their therapist, who's not an expert in this at all, just says, no, I know, uh, you know, I know who you are. We've been meeting for a year and no, you're not on the spectrum. And I just don't think that's a responsible thing to do. You know, you wouldn't say someone, if someone came to you and said, I'm depressed, you wouldn't just go, no, you're not depressed. You would do an evaluation. You would explore it and you want to get, if you wouldn't know how to do it, you want to get some training in it. So I think those two points are, you know, thank you for the opportunity to even say them. I really think those two points really need to be, you know, um, out there With for the professionals. Phone, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And to couples, you know, just want to say, I think there's a lot of hope for behavioral changes. Nobody wants to change who a person is when they're in a relationship. You just want to change behaviors. And my goal as a coach is to help partners feel more comfortable in the relationship. For some people, comfort is physical. For some people, it's emotional or a combination of both. So I don't think that it's all up to one person or the other in a neurodiverse relationship to do all the work. I think both people have to come in being on the same team, wanting to learn new things of both, you know, both wanting to understand each other and make each other more comfortable. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Grace. This was such a lovely conversation. I'm so happy that you joined. Um, I know I learned a lot and I hope that people listening to this, maybe, you know, they either, even if you're not neuro divergent or in a neurodiverse relationship that um, maybe you know somebody that is. And I think hopefully hearing this information can then, because I think resources is just like the biggest deal. And so that's the idea is like connecting with people, imparting wisdom to other people that may not even know it exists um, is my hope. And so um, I really appreciate this conversation. It'd be great to have you on the show again, just to talk through other things. And I think once people start listening, they may have their own questions. Um, So thank you so much. And Thank um, I, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll connect soon. Look forward Thank to you so it. much, Grace. All right. Take, Take care. care. Wow. What an episode. I came across, like I said, the topic of what autism, Asperger's, the higher end of the spectrum is a little while back. And it really did blow my mind as to what it is and what it has evolved to and to learn um, what the neurological difference is and, and some of the challenges um, that are, like I said, very nuanced. The things that we talked about aren't necessarily big concrete things where you uh, typically think of, of what autism looks like, right? It seems like there's not a look for autism. And I think that that's the most critical component. If there's anything that I want to express and to impart um, to the listeners is that when somebody is autistic, it does not mean they look a certain way. It does not mean they act a certain way. It is, it's a representation of a neurological difference. And I really encourage you guys to just read, read about it, understand the spectrum and maybe pass it along to somebody, pass along the information, connect with people, talk about this, talk about the show that you heard about this, um, this podcast and that, uh, maybe it can just really, maybe this can just really start a conversation that really needs to happen. So if you like that episode, subscribe, hit the follow button. That will get you all the uh, episodes as they get released. And you can, if you, if you also want some resources, 
check out the show notes. I'm also going to be posting in my Facebook group, Parents Connecting, with some of the resources that Grace talked about. Again, you can use the code Rashida25 to get a 25% discount on the 101 course that she had mentioned. And uh, until then, we will be recording episodes with Grace to continue this really important dialogue. Until next time, happy connecting. Thank you.